Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are today going to be in Acts chapter 14. And as I mentioned last week, we're going to spend a lot of time making observations from the text, exegetical teaching. But today we're going to tweak that just a little bit more than last week and really highlight a topic and press into it, one that's important for us today. Remember, our goal when we go through the scriptures together is not just learning, but it's actual spiritual formation both individually and as a body of believers together, as we live out what we're watching happen in Acts, which is this koinonia, this fellowship of believers is being formed, and we want to be formed by their story as well. In the spring, we went through the first part of the book of Acts, and we had a series called Becoming the Church. As this Koinonia was birthed. We looked at the marks of their life together, how they um, were being formed as a community. And we studied through each of those marks as they were becoming the church. And now as we spread out and we start moving away from Jerusalem, we're starting into part two, which is being the Missio Dei, the mission of God. What does it mean for them, this fellowship, to be living out this identity and mission which they've now received and that they're they're living it into in very real and gritty ways. Now, as I mentioned last week, I won't do this every single week, but I wanted to make sure to catch as many people as possible coming out of our studies about the elusive dream and also the worship design experience that Lucas and I shared with many of you who are around in the spring. We are very much committed to learning and being formed by diverse perspectives. So I wanted to show you some of the people that I'm really leaning into so that you know that we're learning with people of different races, different genders, and just different life experiences. Um, and and that's who's forming us as a community. That's important to us. Last week, we looked at chapters 12 to 13, and we saw a moment of a great deal of action going on. But what we took away was that a political figure of violence, changing leadership at the helm, spiritual resistance in the spiritual realm, and even a faith community messing up. None of that can stop the movement of God. There's nothing that could stop this movement that is growing. For next week, I encourage you to read chapter 15, but today we're gonna dive in in chapter 14 and we're gonna talk about confronting misdirected worship. So I'm just gonna pause for a moment to pray and just to be clear, we do pause a lot and pray in the service. This is as much for me as it is for all of us. So God, would you just uh, calm um, my spirit so that I can be responsive to you in the moment. If there's anything to pivot or change, Lord, the most important thing is that we together are focused on learning and being shaped by your Holy Spirit here in our midst. We thank you, Jesus, for your presence as well, and just pray that your name would be made much of in our time together and as we go from this place. Amen. So a couple of text observations that we start with. In chapter 14, we see a great deal of travel. Remember, in chapter 13, that really diverse group of church leaders that were named were praying and fasting and discerned from the Holy Spirit that they should commission Paul and Barnabas to be sent on their way, to go with this message of Jesus. So I have a map, 
And this is for visual people, but don't worry, it won't be on the test for those of you who don't want, aren't map people. But here's the deal. In chapter 13, they already covered a great deal of territory. And I don't know about you, but if I don't have something visual, it can sound kind of like, first they went to Trader Joe, then to Costco. And they stopped by the dry cleaner, and then they went home. And you don't realize this was like legit travel that was happening. And they covered a lot of this already in chapter 13. And we find ourselves here towards the bottom in this region with the towns of Lystra and Derb. Now, the two previous areas, they would go when they arrived and go into the synagogue and start teaching. And so their message in those spaces was very much how Jesus as Messiah was the fulfillment of Old Testament promise. They were speaking to people who had some background and they could teach scripture in a way that taught that this was being fulfilled. This is a very different region that we're in now. One of the scholars I read taught me that the Lystrans, the people of Lystra, were frequently characterized as largely rustic and uncivilized. We're in the boonies now. We are in a totally different territory. And in this moment as they're there, they're in a public space, and we see this miraculous healing take place. This time, it's Paul. Now, sometimes these stories of healing can get conflated in our minds, mixed up in our minds, because that's true. They're similar stories. Jesus performed similar stories as recorded in the Gospels. But just recently, Peter performed a very similar healing in Acts 3. What we see here is Jesus, Peter, Paul, similar acts. This is to show us, remember, the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work. The people are the faithful vessels participating faithfully in God's movement. So we see in verse 8, it says three things, all saying basically the same thing. He could not use his feet. He had never walked. He was crippled from birth. The repetitive nature of that is meant to emphasize how severe the disability so that the reader, the listener, can see this is a very intensely miraculous healing that happens. But the thing in this little passage that strikes me is the look. And there's so much I don't get to know because I wasn't there seeing the look. But in their exchange, something happens. Somehow, Paul knows this man can be healed. He sees something that indicates this man has the faith to be healed. And this man looking at Paul somehow conjures the faith to know this man can be the vessel of the healing. Somehow they know. I quote Willie Jennings here because I find him not only eloquent but compelling in his language. This is a dance of mutual recognition. Paul sees this man and the man sees Paul and between them is a faith that heals. Together they're flowing in the currents of divine presence. We don't know what happened in that look but clearly something did because their eyes caught Paul, uh, yes, Paul heals and it's attributed to the man as faith. So there's something deep in that look. I wish I could see it, but we have to use our imagination some. Now back to the healing that happened in three. It's true, both Peter and Paul look intently at the crippled person. Both of the healed people leap up after being healed to show the um, extreme miraculousness of the moment. And both of the healings are connected to their faith. And both have a pretty extreme response from religious leaders. But now, rather than the Jewish leaders, it's the pagan temple that responds. They have no context for what the Jewish leaders would have thought was blasphemy. They're just like, look, 
the gods are here, lowercase g. So lowercase g versus uppercase g, capital G is Yahweh God, the one true God, the God we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This land, this area has not heard of that one. So we see here a case of mistaken identity. The gods have come down in human form, lowercase g, verses 11 through 13. So before, again, they went to the synagogue and people knew about Yahweh God. Here, they're responding in the only context they know, and that's their Greek gods, lowercase g. In stark contrast to another similar moment that we might remember from last week. Remember something similar happened where Herod started talking in his grand robes and people thought he was so eloquent. He has the voice of a god and he took it. He's like, that's right, I do. That's me. And he accepts their praise and he is killed immediately for accepting that praise. He dies of worms, which was really gross, but true. But here we see something very different. Paul and Barnabas, what's their response? When the people are like, whoa, look, these are gods. It's, it's Zeus and Hermes among us. And right away, they're like, this will not, no, don't do it. Do not be mistaken about who we are. So we're supposed to see that stark contrast of a mistaken, uh, misplaced worship. So the, they start ripping their clothing. Okay, that's strange to us, but this is, we see it in other places in scripture. It's a Jewish cultural response to the extreme uh, dismay at blasphemy, speaking against the one true God. We rip our clothes, but here's what else it does. Like, look how gritty that is. Look how ungodlike that move is, is to, to make that, that mess and even uh, make such little of yourself that you'll rip your own clothes and just it just is so very human so it's an act that shows no no this isn't true so they think it's these two gods because that's their context you see something that you cannot describe mystery of the divine you have nothing to use except your own context to describe the indescribable in any culture if something miraculous and indescribable happens you use the language you have and this is their language they have their religious mythology it's all they have to go on but what Paul and Barnabas immediately identify is this is misdirected worship and we have to confront it very clearly. They have confused the messenger as the object of worship instead of the message, which is the message has been brought by the way of divine healing, right? So this is always the work of clarification to separate the messenger of God from the presence of God. The messenger is the one, be it uh, Paul or Peter or anyone else in this community who, who might pray over you and you receive a word or anything. Like that's the messenger, a faithful participant. But the presence of God is what gets our adoration and what gets honor and glory. And right now we see that through the healing. Hope, healing, and restoration, God is in breaking. But humans show a tendency towards idolatry and the ever-present danger that the message be confused with the messenger. That's Eusto Gonzalez points that out. And just right here at Missio Day, you guys have heard me say this before, and I always will. Like, that's why I'm really committed. We are really committed to resisting, not just here, but like in our world, the celebrity pastor culture. Those words don't fit together, right? Because you do not want the messenger to be confused with the message. God's word is spoken through human voices in cases, in some cases, like it was in this story. So what we're honing in on today and what we're going to pause from um, just 
just reading the text on. We're going to get into this concept that we're faced with, which is idolatry. This is a term that many of us who've been raised in the church know about, about what an idol is. And the reason we know is that we as Christians are a continuation of the stories of God that started in Old Testament scriptures with this covenant that God made. And God said, I am your God and you will be my people and I will bless all the nations through you. And we see ourselves as a continuation of that same people of God promise. So we've been taught or we've heard that right in that moment of that covenant commitment that God made. God gave his people 10 commandments, some base commandments to follow. Jesus later sums them all up. Love God and love one another. That's the cliff notes. But Yahweh God originally gave 10. He gave 10 commandments and starts out of the gate with this. I am the Lord your God. Therefore, no other gods before me is number one. No graven images of another God is another one. The only way God is basically saying, I'm paraphrasing God, I'm taking a little bit of poetic license, but I cleared it with God. The only way you're going to remember I'm the one true God is if you don't distract yourself with other false gods. And it's also going to be really helpful for you not to follow your human tendency to want to understand and confine divine mystery by making it tangible and making a little statue and worshiping that because that's gonna be your tendency. Don't do those things. I'm your God. I am the one. The most famous in Old Testament, arguably, but I think the most famous idol is the golden calf. Quick story. The people of God are enslaved in Egypt and God comes to rescue them using his messenger, Moses. And through Moses, God performs 10 miraculous plagues upon the people of Egypt to say, let my people go, or, and he does this 10 times, the 10th time, and each time, Pharaoh, by the way, was like, ooh, yeah, maybe, nope, not going to do it, I changed my mind. 10th time is what we call Passover. Every firstborn son in the land was killed by an angel of death, unless it was the people of Israel who had put the blood of the lamb the Passover lamb over their doorpost, those houses were passed over. That's what Passover is about, right? So, but this is a major miracle that cuts Pharaoh because he loses his son. And he was like, oh my gosh, that is it. Get out of here. I don't want any more of these plagues. So the people leave. They've just lived under that blood of saving grace of God in their doorposts. They've lived under that miracle. So then they take off. And then they get to this Red Sea and they're stuck and they're like, what are we going to do? And God's like, I'm here again. And he parts the water and they make it through again. They lived that miracle. You have to feel it, right? One step at a time, walking through the dry land in the midst of the Red Sea. That was their lived experience. They get to the other side and Pharaoh and his army are killed. They're saved. They're in the desert. And then they're like, we want to go back. We are hungry and thirsty. And God's like, I am still here and gives them miraculous bread and miraculous water. Their lived experience includes amazing miracles in their history. Like it's not even just story to them. They've lived these things out. And then they get into um, a spot where they stay put while Moses goes to chat with God in Mount Sinai. They have this amazing exchange. And God's telling Moses, here's what about this temple and sacrifice and the priests, my system on how to be among you, how my presence will be with you. You don't need a little statue. 
And Moses is like, okay, I got it. And he takes the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments and he goes down to tell the people the really good news and they've made a golden calf and they're worshiping it, asking for directions from a golden calf. That's the short version. By chapter 32, they've been impatient already. They've lived these miracles. But I don't, this isn't me judging them, right? This is the human tendency. The human, all of us, the human tendency. That's why God called them stiff-necked people. We fall for this stuff. And they did now. They made this golden calf out of their jewelry. They took out their nose rings and their earrings and their ring rings. And they put it all together. And they watched someone make a calf. And then they worshipped it. It used to be earrings. And now it's a God that's going to lead them. My literal earrings just became divine. I find this hard to accept. All the miracles they just walked through. And again, this isn't a judgment. It's a sober-minded reminder about us as humans. And I think it's hard for us sometimes because our cultural idols are not so brash, not so physical. Here's what I mean. If I'm being honest with you guys, I am kind of judgy about the golden calf thing. This is just me. Okay, I get a little judgy. I'm a little snobby about it. The calf seems so dumb. It was literally just their jewelry. They watched it get forged in a fire, and now they think it's divine. I think that's dumb, but I'm just confessing that to you. It's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing that makes total sense to them, and I just don't have quite the right tweak to get it, but it made sense in their culture, and so I honor that. I honor that this is a different culture than mine, but I do think that us translating this to our day takes a little bit of cultural sensitivity. And so I was praying and researching this week, trying to um, think, how do we bring that? Since it just, it doesn't click to me. Golden calf earrings, it doesn't. But what will click to us? So now a note. I have a few to submit to us today as a community. And as a side note, if personal conviction comes from any of this, praise God. That's a beautiful thing. What that means is the Holy Spirit's at work. And praise be to Jesus, it means that there's a path to healing on the other side. Personal conviction in any of this is a beautiful thing. And let's go through that all together in community. If, or not, I mean, not to everyone at once, if you don't have to confess to all of us. But if you need help, if personal conviction has come, let us be here for one another if that happens. But that's not actually my main purpose in what I'm bringing before us today. So that'll be great if that happens. Here's what I want for us to do. I want to ask you all, us all, to have our radars up for how our culture worships these false gods and sends messages to all of us and all of our neighbors who don't know Christ, to all of us, saying that these things are worthy of our worship. I want us to listen and say, oh, I do hear that in our world. I do hear that. Commercials, movies, news, socials, whatever. Sometimes it's subtle messaging. It's not always as obvious as somebody handing us back a golden calf and saying, here, worship this. Put this on your pedestal. It's not always that obvious. Instead, I think sometimes it's slipping silently into the very water supply. And we're drinking the water in Chicago, right? Not maliciously, it's just so subtle that it can just get ingrained and we we fail to see the flashy sign of a golden calf. So I am going to say, like, please consider where our culture says these messages and get mad about it. That's righteous anger in my mind, and I want us to have that stirred up, because if we see it, we can confront it. 
So I put up this cheesy pedestal in part to be ridiculous because in other cultures you would set something on an altar and bow to the altar and worship it. We just don't do that. So just think, as silly as it would be for somebody to say this golden cow on this pedestal, let's pretend these things could have shape. If we could set them on the pedestal, what is our culture saying? The first one that I submit to you uh, is platform, influence, your curated identity. Now listen, very, very important point. Social media is not evil, it's a tool, it's a thing. It's wonderful for marketing our businesses. It's so fun to see what my second cousin's kids are doing on vacation. Social media is not evil, it's a thing. When is it an idol? When we build it, obsess over it, and it becomes insatiable desire. When it consumes a disproportionate amount of our thought and time. You have to know that for yourself. Nobody else can point that out and be like, hey, did you know you're carrying around a golden calf? It's a subtle tweak that can happen in ourselves where suddenly we've just lost three hours to curating an identity that does not match what our real lived experience is looking like. And we're growing a platform at the cost of growing friendships. Now, platform isn't bad. It's great, use your influence well. So please hear, these things aren't evil in and of themselves, it's when our heart is postured wrongly. This also, by the way, this category, can include our uh, affiliation or with an organization or with a political party where that is our primary identifier. That's when that becomes out of whack in our identification. Or when we overly emphasize who, whose platform we share, whose we have access to. This also falls into the category of worshiping somebody else's platform, celebrity worship, all of that. Again, ce celebrities and great speakers, like that's not bad stuff. It, you have to know, and this takes a really humble posture to say like, when has that slipped and become my God, the thing that I would devote my life to? The second one I would say, I put in this category of consumerism, money, and financial insatiability. Don't read instability, read insatiability. I have an unending appetite for more. Money is not evil. Money is a tool. I preached on this recently. We can refine it up. I won't go through all of the scripture references again. It's about the place it has in our hearts. We talked about this again, and Jesus talked about money so much, and he didn't ever say it was evil. The money's at the heart of all evil. It's when it gets tweaked in our heart. That's the other thing. Another side note here, if you are um, hyper-focused on money because your bank account is dry and you're worried about where your next meal will come from, that's not idolatry, that's poverty. I'm talking about something else, and that is grievous. Let us come alongside you if that's the story. That's separate than what I'm talking about here. Here, what I'm talking about, finances and resources, all of you being used to accumulate, that is at the center of what inspires you. Ooh, yes, the biggest thing I can be about is more. I want more for me. More for what purpose? For the purpose of more. That's my purpose. I want more, of course. There's no end to that thought process, by the way. There is actually no goal line. Every time somebody lives with that goal line, that goal line is constantly moving. There's no end to more. 
including in this part, I would put uh, something important where I say consumerism isn't just about buying goods. We can be consumeristic in our relationships, including our relationship and engagement with the church body. What that looks like is when it's a one-way thing. I want to go for what I get, but I don't want to give back. I don't want to have to serve to financially support or give back to God or invest in a relationship. I'm just, I really want to know what you're going to give me. There are seasons when you need to be the one served, but in the life of the body, it includes giving of self, of resources, of relationship, because the church needs you to be us. So it's like, it's different than just a one-way street, but also in other relationships. You can be the consumer and not be giving back. So I put consumerism isn't all about money, so I point that out a little bit specifically here. But the concept here, if you were to take one thing away from this category is more, For me, I need more, and that's my life's purpose. When you've gotten there, then money and your heart has gotten a little bit off on where God is. So hold on one second. Chris knows. We got it? Right now, I want all of you to look at the board for just a moment, please. Okay, Chris. You now know what I'm talking about. There are little ears in the room. Certain things perk up. So I'm going to talk about these three next, and you all know what we're talking about, right? Kaiba had not. Did we catch that? Okay, it worked. Um, So, connections. Culture paints this as a goal, and we come against that. Now listen here, connections are really good in marriage for how God designed healthy connections, but it's not the end goal in and of itself. It's really important that it's especially not the end goal outside of marriage. There's damage that happens there, and that's not God's design Culture doesn't agree with that. Culture would paint this differently. The other thing I would say that's really important about why connections cannot be the goal that culture tells us it is, is that as Christians, we affirm both marriage and singleness with equal kingdom value. And the world's view of connectedness does not align with that. The early church proves this, even against, over and against Roman culture that did not have that same view. The church, the early church said, this is of enormous value. You have more of your time for God and for this purity that is beautiful, but actually believed that that purity brought you closer to an imitation of Christ. It was a beautiful thing, but in church, somewhere along the way, even in church, we lost that, and we said that one status was a goal over and against another, and I say absolutely in the name of Jesus, we come against that lie, but if culture is telling us that connectedness is the goal, then we as Christians would therefore surmise that so is marriage, and that's just not true. Connectedness is a beautiful thing with it and God's design for the healthiness of marriage as a sign of one kind of intimacy. There are many kinds of intimacy. And as Christians, we have the ability to fulfill those in the lives of one another. That's what we're made for is relationship and intimacy. Now, let's, setting aside singleness, even within marriage, connectedness is not to be the goal. It's a signpost of intimacy of lives connected and devoted to one another, but it is not the center of married life, which brings me to romance. Movies, right? This other person is going to save me, complete me. It's the goal that the romance would be. That puts a lot on him to fill me up. You know what I mean? Or vice versa, whatever. Um, That romance messaging that the life gives. The world will sell us that romance is at the center, but it somehow forgets to paint the picture of true soulmate connectedness at which self-giving 
Love is at the center. Romance doesn't talk about selflessness being something where I will give of myself for the thriving of Andy and he does the same back for me, laying down each other so that the, ourselves so that the other one is built up into who God made them to be. That's not the message the world gives us with romance. So when we're faced with something where we have to work through tough stuff, Commit to making it through the muck and mire together because we have covenantly connected with the other person. When we have to do that in romance, we think it's broken because the world doesn't tell us that part. And that's part of connectedness and relationship, working through the muck and mire. The romance plot line is, is a false idol. Um, romance is great. I love that. I went on a date with Andy last night. We had a lovely time. That was fun. Don't, and it's not bad, right? It's not bad. It's, it's not the idol. It's not the false God that the world would tell us it is. Next in here, I put body image. I think you guys get this. Like, you know, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to treat this vessel well. We are created by God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, your health, your, your body matters immensely. Um, I'm talking about when body image, the way that the world designs it with airbrushing and impossible standards is another one. Like money, there's no end to that path that the world would sell us. That's what I'm talking about. And that, um, that can become something where it's a slippery slope and, and we've begun to idolize our looks, our looks. Um, okay, so again, all of these things in healthy perspectives are fantastic. They're actually, they're all beautiful gifts, but only in healthy perspectives and if they're set right in our heart. The last one I would say is comfort, safety, a sense of security and control. I almost put this under money, but I actually think it is separate. Um, what I'm talking about here is when you will avoid discomfort or inconvenience at all costs. Culture will say it is all about you. And culture would say, you got to have everything under control. I think that's why anxiety is so much on the rise these days, myself included. Um, it, life isn't controllable. It does not mean that being unsafe is what we're talking about. No, be wise. We want you to be safe. Uh, what we're talking about is when we obsess over things and try to play God over our own life uh, to an obsessive point. Self-care taken to self-obsession um, is different than just caring for yourself and making sure you have boundaries. Uh, another one would be if you are avoiding loving God and loving others because it's inconvenient or uncomfortable for you, uh, Comfort as a life goal when it becomes your idol, when it becomes your idol is counter gospel. Jesus talked about laying down your life for somebody else. And so I would just say that what Jesus offers is so much richer because it's bound up in community, it's bound up in relationship, and that includes self-giving towards the good of another. And culture's idol of comfort numbs us to a cocoon of self-love and self-worship. That's what culture would tell you, that that's the goal. This one is an ouchy one for me. I'll just be honest with you guys. Jammy pants are my favorite pants. Every seat in our living room has a cozy blanket at arm's length at any moment. And it's not wrong to be comfy. It's if I were to give up doing other things, sacrificial things for other people because that was the only place I wanted to be. But I will be putting on jammy pants later this afternoon. So that was a lot. Um, but I what I want is I want us to see this because I want us to feel mad that these are the plot lines that the world around us is teaching us and our neighbors. The reason I want us to get mad is that if we're able to see it, we can tear down the false god. We can put money, connectedness, platform of influence, comfort in their right and healthy places. These are tools and treats. 
but never a God lowercase to be worshiped. And it becomes clear when we take whatever that tool or treat is and we set it in our hearts and say, where does this compare to the Shekinah glory of God's presence? And it should be overshadowed 100% every time. Shekinah glory of Yahweh who rescued Israelites from slavery can rescue us from false gods still now. And so as Christians, we can't become numb to the messages of culture that say they're worthy of worship. I wish these things were in the shape of dumb golden calves. I could call them dumb and we'd see them then when someone was trying to hand one to us. But if we see them for the false idols they are, we're more capable of tearing them down and bringing them to the right place in our hearts and to the hearts of others, which we can get to in a minute. Really quickly, stick with me. This seems random, but I have a point. In the Old Testament, there are these things called Asherah poles. These are sacred poles or high places that were used in worship of pagan goddesses. They're physical things, okay, altars. Locations to worship the false gods that we've been talking about, but they're false gods. So in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we see the Lord specifically saying, no Asherah poles, don't build them up. So I have two points in bringing up this concept of the physical location, the physical thing. Number one, Sam and I were talking earlier this week. I think sometimes we can get, um, they seem slippery in our mind or we're not totally clear, the difference between the, uh, the false god and the vice, the sin that the false god is trying to promote, okay? And so if we look at these, I think, I hope this is helpful. If it's confusing, just forget this slide. But here's what I'm trying to say. Let's just pretend that um, you're struggling with lust, right? And you know it. You might be trying to like attack at that, but you may not notice that the Asherah pole is right there in your living room. Your bookmarks on your website. Like you've got Asherah poles that are not helping you to stop the false god of connections that the world's been teaching you. Does that make sense? Like you don't know when you have a high place in your home maybe even, or if um, if, if your false god is platform, you don't, you don't know that because no one handed you a little platform gold calf, right? But you're really, you're getting the sense that you're self-centeredness, you're the center of the universe, not just yours. You're struggling with that. Well, you really might have to mind how much time you're giving of your own life and heart to social media. There are apps for that. Like Asherah polls can be torn down. You can get help. And my, my thing I would like to propose to you is that sometimes we think that the sin is platform. Okay, it's not. It's not, that's the false God. So anyway, what I'm trying to show you here is to help you even identify. So if you're struggling with greed and your heart is really um, obsessed with your bank account, there are things you can do to knock down an Asher pole that will help you. That's what I'm trying. I hope, did that make sense? Okay. Um, it was, didn't come out as clear as it did in my brain. It would help a lot if you could dethrone the false God, to dethrone the false God, if there's not a place to worship it. That, there, that's what I wanted to say. Okay, the number two point. There's this whole list of kings throughout the Old Testament. Some allowed these Asherah poles to be built. Some built them because they wanted to get the um, uh, adoration of local pagans that were around. And some tore them down, and that was pleasing in God's sight. But I point out one example to you. Uh, Joshua did what was right in the sight of the Lord in all the years that Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. I'm sorry, Jehoiada, I probably said that wrong. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Here's what I point out here. He didn't go there. He didn't worship them. 
He didn't tear them down, but he did what was right in the Lord's sight, and he avoided them himself, but other people still could worship at the Asherah pole, and they did, because the culture around them told them that was what to do. He didn't take them down. Without actively tearing them down, others fell to worship of the false god again, even if the king was on the right track. They were part of the culture. The temptation was deep. If it's in your power to knock down an Asherah pole, do it. Do it for someone else. If you have any ability to point out where somebody that you love, maybe in this room, maybe elsewhere, is struggling and you see an Asherah pole that you could help remove in some way, if it's in your power, help to knock that down because it's not just about us individually. This conversation that I bring to us today is about us being salt and light in a culture that's being inundated with subtle stories of false gods worthy of worship and praise. We want to remove them so that others can hear a truth. And here's what I wanted to get back to. You guys, you guys know, I've already warned you, this path of faithful persistence in Acts is not all rosy. And this story isn't either. The people don't hear the message. They actually end up stoning Paul and leaving him for dead, and they got to get out of town. It's not lovely. This is gritty and true. It's real, and I appreciate that it's not all painted over. But here's what I want to point out from this story that I think is really beautiful. When they come against and confront the misdirected worship in this story to these pagans who are using their Greek mythology to worship, Paul and Barnabas see that the place to start is no longer Jesus, the fulfillment of the Messiah. These people don't have a context to know that they've been waiting for Jesus. They have a hole in their heart because they're trying to worship a God. They need to figure out which one to worship. Paul and Barnabas, I think this might be, don't quote me on this, the only place that we hear one of these big sermon moments where Jesus' name doesn't even come up. They go to creator God because they see, I see you wanting to worship. I see you wanting to know who is worthy of your praise. It's the one who made heaven and earth. They start with where the people might have a chance to see what they're going after, what's the desire of your heart so that I can let you know how our Yahweh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the fulfillment, but it may not be the same talk track for everyone. How do we combat false gods, lowercase g, with a message spoken in a way that culture can see what is the true desire of my heart that's leading me on these paths? What is this longing that I haven't been able to articulate? So I'm looking everywhere for connections or connectedness. What was my word? I'm looking everywhere for a platform because I don't know what that hole in my heart is that I'm trying to fill. It's not a happy ending in this story, but I believe it's a beautiful story for us to learn how to get into the culture. That's why I'm pressing in. Culture's speaking one story. What's the story that you're going to live? Because culture is pouring it out thick. It may not be golden calves or Zeus or things that we see as big as sheer poles, but it could very likely be subtle messages that cannot be touched or seen, but we feel them. And we can say, in all honesty, we feel the pull to worship those things, to align our hearts according to them as false gods worthy of worship and affection and devotion in our time and our hearts and our resources. No, worshiping earrings is dumb. Call it out for what it is. Can we also say worshiping a bank account is dumb? I say we should be able to say that. And culture will say, I don't think it is. We have to be ready for that. 
We have to be ready with boldness and perseverance to be willing to say that thing like Paul, Paul and Barnabas did. Because we have a story of a God who did come down and took on all of those sins that were on that list there. Took all of that on so that he could help us. Jesus can help us through the Holy Spirit to defeat the cultural false gods that are all around us and tell a different story. So I just put a whole lot out there. I wanted to close with this passage as we transition into a time um, of response. Because I think, again, this is important for us to really think about how do we live as salt and light when this is the narrative that's going on all around us? We're swimming in this water counter-culturally, against the current, and people will see that, and there's a joy undescribable that can come with that. That's a living witness. And so I thought of this... Um, this passage that I love, I'm going to read it out of the message version of the Bible just because I, I like mixing up how we hear some words sometimes. So um, we're going to do a few things in response in just a minute, but then I'm going to sort of transition us by prayerfully reading 2 Corinthians 4 portions of it over us. Now, the thing I want to say about that, this is Paul's writing, right? Paul, who just got stoned and left for dead. Paul, who they thought was Hermes and drove him out of town and tried to worship him. It's his own pen. He's lived this experience, what he's writing about, as he gives this instruction to the church in Corinth. He has experienced this personally. So what we're going to do is, I'm, this is going to be our prayer, these words of Paul for us as we engage in this conversation. And then um, Sam's going to come up, lead us in our corporate confession. And then um, Emily and the crew will come back up and lead us in worship, during which time we will respond to what's brewing in our hearts by coming and partaking of the body and blood of Jesus through the bread and the cup. This is our yes and amen to joining in with his redemptive work. We also respond to God in generosity and say we don't want to just be consumers of the gracious goodness you've given to us, but instead respond in generosity back to God. And then we will also uh, be singing and praying together to give our adoration to the God who deserves our adoration and praise. So if you all will posture your heart um, in a posture of prayer, I'm going to read these words of Paul and then um, Sam will take us from there. Paul reminds us of this. Since God has so generously let us in on what he's doing, we're not about to throw our hands and walk off the job just because we run into occasional hard times. We refuse to wear masks and play games. Uh, that's not a COVID mask. I didn't catch that earlier. Um, that's be false. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes and we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display so that those who want to see can judge for themselves in the presence of God. If our message is obscure to anyone, it's not because we're holding back in any way. It's because other people are looking or going the wrong way and refuse to give it serious attention. All they have eyes for is the fashionable lowercase God of darkness. They think he can give them what they want and they that they won't have to bother believing a truth they can't see. They're stone blind to the day spring brightness of the message that shines with Christ, who gives us the best picture of God we'll ever get. Remember, our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ the master. All we are is messengers, errand runners from God for you. It started when God said, light up the darkness. And our lives filled up with light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. If you only look at us, you may as well miss the brightness. We carry a precious, we church, all of us, carry a precious message around in the unordained clay pots of our ordinary lives. 
That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. I go ahead to 16. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside where God is making new life. Not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today and gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. Holy God, give us the encouragement in the ordinary lives that we live to shine this brightness as we reflect you and a far greater message to a world that's saturated with false messages. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.